This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you? I'm doing very well. I'm very excited about this episode. This is great, great episode, and we have a great guest who does a podcast that is super interesting. It's called True Crime Bullshit, and it's really a deep dive on the serial killer Israel Keys. Well, you'd think that there was already enough information about Keys out there, but Josh Hallmark comes in with a completely different take on it. There's a lot of interviews out there on YouTube, and so Josh went through all of them. And talk about putting it, putting you in a dark place. <laughs> uh, you know, he he did the Lord's work. You know, no one no one wanted to do that. And so he pulled out some amazing moments, and he related it to the whole true crime craze, and he calls his show True Crime Bullshit because that is a line that Israel Keys used. Because Israel Keys, as we now know, was up and coming in, as a serial killer as the uh, social media was, was developing. And he was using it to, I guess, maybe monitor what people were saying about him and maybe even track and divert and replan based on that. Yeah, he was writing comments on articles written about his victims. And just he wanted to know what the police knew. And so he's officially attributed with three murders, but the FBI suspects at least 11. And Josh is an awesome guest, and he's also a very, very busy uh, contributor to the podcast uh, industry. He's got a bunch. He's got the true crime uh, bullshit. He's got Our Americana. He's got the Playlist podcast, and he's got one called Karen and Ellen. Check him out uh, on Twitter at Josh Hallmark and follow what he does because he's a nonstop uh, contributor to uh, this industry. Okay, Lance, and just want to let you know out there that we are doing a live show in Nashua, New Hampshire on May 22nd at 6 p.m. at the Riverwalk Cafe, 35 Railroad Square in Nashua, Lance. And we're calling that Missing Brianna Maitland. We have finally got Bruce Maitland, Greg Overacker, Lou Berry. All together on the stage, Bruce is, of course, Brianna's father. So we're going to talk about the case with Greg Overacker, the licensed private investigator, and Lou Barry, a seasoned member of law enforcement. And together they've been working on Brianna's case for over a decade. So we got all three of them up there, and we have Chloe. Chloe Cantor is joining us as well. That's right, and she's from the new podcast out of Crawl Space Media, Lance, called True Crime Twins. Which is getting some very good feedback. Really is, so check it out. Uh, there are links in the show notes. And I just want to say that tickets are limited if anyone's been to the Riverwalk Cafe. We were there when we did the Science Cafe panel for Forensic Science. Anyone who's been there, they know that this is a very intimate venue, so we like to call it an intimate engagement Get your tickets now. The link for that is in the show notes, and you can also get it on uh, brown paper tickets. 
And we've revamped our Patreon page, Lance. So become one of our Patreons at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast because we are doing weekly vault episodes where we tell personal stories, but we also cover true crime news like the Delphi press conference that happened on Monday. We will give our take on that in that vault. And Lance, I'm also going to tell you a story about the time I got mugged at Knife Point. Well, there we go. I'll tune in. So tune in for that. That is a wild story. And also give our show a nice rating on your listening app. You know what? We don't ask for this a lot or enough, really. But if you're listening, you like the show, please just uh, take a minute out of your time and give us a nice rating. Yeah, it it takes less than a minute. Just pop that five star up there and good things will happen to you. And all your dreams will come true. All your dreams will come true. (laughs) And uh, if you really love Crawl Space, the entire archive is at Stitcher Premium. StitcherPremium.com. Use code MMM and get a free month. This podcast, Lance, as you know, began in February of 2017. So we've got a bunch of episodes that are on Stitcher Premium. In addition, we also have Missing Maura Murray's creator commentaries on Stitcher Premium, which is really picking up some traction. Yeah, you can get a lot of information with the creator commentary. We go back and we talk over the old episodes and we provide feedback. We provide updates, corrections. We give ourselves a fair share of grief, and it's a really good listen. And we're getting, like you said, some good feedback. People are tuning into that. You get a free month. After that, it's four ninety nine a month, so you... Not only get our content, but you get a bunch of other content that's provided to you from Stitcher, including like True Crime Garages Off the Record, their exclusive show. And Tim, we have a new friend of Crawlspace. We do. This interview today that we're going to throw it to is brought to us by the Pulse Cellular Hotline. Pulse Cellular is a new network for cell phone service, and you, listener, can receive 10% off your monthly wireless bill by using promo code CRAWLSPACE, 10% off your already very inexpensive wireless bill. If you're tired of videos buffering on your phone or sick of losing signal when you try streaming your favorite radio station, then you need Paul Cellular, America's fastest-growing national wireless carrier. And Paul Cellular has you covered with nationwide unlimited talk, text, and data plans in all 50 states and U.S. Caribbean regions, including Puerto Rico and U.S. Caribbean regions. 50 gigs per line, hotspot, and Wi-Fi calling included. Plans include talk, text, and 5 gigs of LTE data when traveling to Mexico or Canada. And all with the best and latest phones. But do you already have a phone that works for you? I sure do. You can switch. It's simple and easy with Paul Cellular. So receive 10% off your monthly bill using promo code CRAWLSPACE. No contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. Sign up and make the switch to Pulse Cellular today. And so let's throw it to Josh Hallmark on the Pulse Cellular Hotline, Lance. Check out his show, True Crime Bullshit, about Israel Keys. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today in the Crawl Space studios with Lance, as always. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing excellent. I'm very excited for our interview today. We're nestled here, Crawl Space Studios, and we're joined via Skype by a good friend of ours, slightly long overdue uh, interview here. Yeah, Josh Hallmark is joining us via the Skype hotline regarding his fantastic new podcast, True Crime Bullshit. What's up, Josh? Hey guys, how's it going? Very well. How are you today? I'm good. Good. You have a lot of podcasts. 
I do. It's a, it's a little exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> do you just do you just stay in the little hut that you've created in your home for like twenty yeah. hours a day? Yeah, basically, I've like I've developed um, like scoliosis and sciatica because I'm just hunched over in a blanket for it all day. <laughs> it makes worth sense. It. Yeah, totally worth it. Um, so, tell us a little bit about true crime bullshit and how that came to be. Yeah, so I actually, it's funny because it just premiered in December of last year, but I've been working on it since I started podcasting in 2015, 16. Yeah, we spoke right around that time, and I remember you telling us that you were working on an Israel Keys um, podcast because we had mentioned Israel Keys on Missing Maura Murray, and you had emailed us and said, you guys aren't doing an Israel Keys podcast, are you? <laughs> and we were like, no, no, we don't have, we're not planning that. And you're like, okay, because I am, and uh, and here we are, like whatever, two two some odd years later. So you really were doing it, and you really were putting in an incredible amount of research. Yeah, I basically spent the last three years researching as much as humanly possible and living in fear that someone was going to beat me to the punch. <laughs> so I'm glad that that did not happen, um, and just kind of. You know, I think it's funny. I you mentioned I do three other shows, and I think they've all kind of um, created the path for true crime bullshit in my narrative style and the research and development. And so I think you know, while I've been researching, I've been doing these other shows that kind of created the narrative of what the show was going to be, just by things I've learned from each of those other podcasts. Okay, so. The other podcasts, are you saying one could expect them to be more along the lines of you're letting the narrative take you along and true crime bullshit is something that's a little bit more packaged and ready to go? Yeah, you know, I would say so. Our Americana is, you know, it looks at events, but it really tells the story of those events through how they impacted the people involved in them. Um, and I think that really shifted how I looked at true crime. Uh, I've always been a really big true crime fan. But um, I think it's fair to say we've kind of started producing true crime and relating to true crime in a very uh, mechanical and limiting way sometimes. You know, like it's crime, victim, criminal. Um, And I think as true crime continues to grow um, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon, I think we're really going to have to um, expand the way we look at cases and kind of dive into the ethos and pathos of true crime and and crimes and victimhood and victimology and families. And, you know, it's it's a big web. And that's one thing I learned a lot through researching this case is going through the FBI file is, you know, you're researching one case and you see little nuggets of all these other famous cases in there, whether it's, you know, could he have killed Maura Murray or... Was he responsible for Lyle Stevick? And a lot of it is, like, crazy stuff. Um, and a lot of it is, like, very plausible. But they all kind of make their way in there. And then you see really interesting things. Like, you know, my son, they th- they think he killed himself. He left a note. But I just, I'm hoping Israel Keys abducted him. And you just start to see that it, it's so much bigger than the way that I think a lot of true crime stories are told. And so our Americana really influenced that, like, this isn't about the crime. This is about everyone involved in it and what they took away from that experience um, and what we as listeners take away from that experience. Yeah. And so you, the title of your show is True Crime Bullshit, which kind of encapsulates the world that we live in. But also that line is taken from Israel Keys. Yeah, I thought it was um, 
a, a little bit of poetic justice, I guess, um, in that his biggest fear, which he said, was that he was going to be part of some true crime bullshit and that someone was going to be, you know, on a TV show telling his story. And I thought that that was really apt because true crime sometimes does feel like bullshit. Um, but also, uh, I wanted to really serve this back um, in exactly the way he didn't want it to be done. Yeah. Exactly. Well done. In his face. Right. Because he was active during the beginning stages of this true crime, even uh, crowdsourcing, I would say, wave, uh, whether people were crowdsourcing for funds like Indiegogo or Kickstarter. But all of a sudden, the people who you lost touch with in high school, you can find on Facebook or Twitter, some sort of social. There's crowdsourced uh, fundraisers and there's also crowdsourced investigations. And would you say that Keyes was the first person to operate as a serial killer in this particular moment of time? Um, I mean, that we know of. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't. Todd Kolhep also, I think, is one of the other more recent um, notorious serial killers. But I do think Keyes was very much aware of it. And he talks about it in a lot of his FBI interviews where, you know, he's watching the news, looking to see if any of his victims are being reported on. He's looking at social media. He's commenting on Facebook on news stories. Um, so I think he was very much using... He was terrified of it, and he was a bit of a Luddite, um, but he was using technology and social media and the true crime craze uh, to keep an eye on things, to cover his tracks. It was always very much present in his mind, especially later in his killing spree. Okay, cool. My follow-up question to that is, you kind of alluded at it right there, he was terrified of it. What what was it about the social media and crowdsource information that he was terrified of, aside from the obvious, and what did he use to his advantage that you know of? Well, so he... You know, he started killing, and he's only a few years older than me. Um, so we are kind of in this weird generation where technology um, advanced significantly right around the time we were going to college. So we didn't grow up with the internet. We didn't grow up with social media. We didn't grow up with cell phones. Um, and particularly him, because he grew up um, mostly in a, you know, uh, farmhouse in the middle of the woods with no electricity or water or plumbing. So uh, even more so with him, he had no access to any of this stuff until he was killing people um, when it really kind of spiked. And he was terrified of it. He didn't know what cell phones could track. Um, he didn't know, you know, much like, you know, he talks a lot about BTK. He even refers to him as a pussy at some point. But like he talks about how BTK got busted by sending a CD-ROM. Uh, so he didn't know a lot about technology, but he was very much aware that it could be his downfall, um, which is why it's so stunning that he was commenting on news stories on Samantha Koenig, uh, because it just seemed way out of his depth, but also that he was too smart for that. Um, but he was following stuff on Facebook, and he wanted to keep track of what people were saying, and who knew what, and what people thought. Um, and I think he always knew that he even said, with cell phones out in the world right now, anyone catches me doing anything, it's going to be on the internet in minutes. Uh, so he was very much aware. I find that terrifying, that that uh, someone as evil uh, as Israel Keys, so much uh, of a bastard, will be so self-aware that they're actually consuming some of this true crime uh, infotainment, you know, and even commenting on message boards and things like that. Doesn't it seem like 
you as a serial killer could avoid capture for longer if you consumed all this stuff. Yeah, and that's what's so terrifying about Keyes in general is his um, really, really deep self-awareness. You know, this is a guy who was able to, you know, we look at psychopaths and sociopaths and, I, you know, I'm not um, educated enough to make a decision on which of the two he is. I think we all kind of lean psychopath, but the thing about them is they can't control their impulses. And this is a guy who was planning murders two, three years in advance. Um, so he was deeply self-aware and he was deeply aware that any mistake, any impulse control or any lack of impulse control could be his downfall. Um, and I think that's what made him so meticulous in general, but also in making sure people weren't talking about him. Yeah, it's like premeditative impulse control. Uh, you know, like, uh, that's crazy. It's As if he's protecting himself from himself because he knows that he could be his own demise. Yes. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that's the thing about him that's really fascinating is, you know, he knew he had no control over his need to kill. He grew up in in an environment where he had no control. And I think that that really facilitated um, his abundance of control when it came to killing people. And in his own words um, from your show, which uh, you play a lot of clips from the interviews with him and investigators, he refers to his normal life as being, quote unquote, sidetracked. Yes. Which can only mean sidetracked from his true self, which is just killing people. Yeah. um, And it's weird. I I still, you know, I've spent so much time, quote unquote, with him, um, just researching him and listening to all these interviews and getting to know his friends and family. And I still have this weird dissonance where I believe him when he says that, but I also see what a great family man he was and what a pillar of his community he was and i have such a hard time separating that and and existing in a reality where that was all fake um and i don't know how much of that is my own dissonance and how much of that is his posturing and i'm sure there's it's lies somewhere in between the two yeah it's a good point yeah you just said that you spent some time quote unquote with him but you did speak to family members and friends what did you have to do to ensure that your coverage of keys gives listeners something new. Was that one of the things that you really wanted to do? And how dark did that get? Uh, It got very dark. Um, You know, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but there's there's a Facebook page uh, set up by his uh, ex-fiancee, the mother of his daughter, that I have spent hours on, like late at night, drinking wine, like crying over... um, And just getting to know these people, sometimes literally and sometimes figuratively, and how his crimes affected them, um, and how they've kind of taken that out into the world with them has been incredibly taxing. Uh, And, you know, I say that with the utmost of humility and awareness that, like, the taxation on me is very minimal. Uh, But just being in that has been really challenging. And uh, I think that was a big part of it was, you know, we don't often look at friends and family members of serial killers as being victims as well. Uh, And that was something really critical for me to bring to this podcast. Uh, And I also think just going back to, like, this is more than just crime, victim, criminal. I I want to tell the entire story, the holistic story um, of what the FBI is doing and how it's impacting them and how it's impacting victims of crimes that have nothing to do with keys and how it's impacting 
me as a podcaster and us as listeners. Uh, so I knew that was going to be different. And then I think just shaking things up, you know, uh, I was on a mid-season break. The new episode comes out this Thursday and it's going to be a entirely different format. And we're going to be focusing on Keys, but also really focusing on one of his uh, potential victims in a very different way than I think the rest of the podcast has been. So it's it's about bringing new elements in all the time um, and then just focusing on not just the crime, but uh, how the crime has impacted everybody, everything and everyone. Yeah, I uh, I heard your latest episode and heard that you were, you were about to take a, uh, a little break and I was like, oh, he'll probably be back in a month or two. But it's like, oh, no, you just took a week off. <laughs> no, I took three, but a month or two would have been nice. I actually, I sat down on Friday and started kind of storyboarding, and I was like, Jesus, already? Like, I should have taken two more weeks at least. Yeah, I mean, you're really, really ingrained in this. Uh, you call him Is. Like, you you call him, like, a nickname, which is kind of, I don't know, I don't know the right adjective. Like, it's, it's like, slightly off-putting when you first hear it, I think, but then it's like, well, this makes sense. And, you know, as a listener, you've chosen to, like, listen to the story in your, from your words and your perspective. So, like, you're in. You're in at that point. So, and I, so as a listener, I kind of love that you call him Iz um, because you're so deep in this dive. Is that sort of like a Stockholm Syndrome type thing? <laughs> um, maybe. You know, I, it's the one thing I get criticized the most about, um, which I find somewhat charming, um, you know, better that than, I guess, other things that they could criticize. Uh, for me, it it felt unnatural not to call him is. Um, so I think a lot of it was just that, that, you know, I've spent years listening to interviews, talking to people who knew him, listening to the FBI, reading the FOIA FBI files, and they all refer to him as is. So he has become is to me. Um, but it also was definitely strategic because if I'm going to say, like, this isn't going to be your stereotypical true crime show, we're going to focus on the people, um, but I don't give him humanity, then I'm not doing my job. And I think it's really important to kind of, and I know uh, it can be um, jarring at first, but uh, I think it's important because as soon as I start saying Israel keys or keys or keys or keys, then then he becomes just a serial killer. And this show is more than just a serial killer. Um, it's about a father uh, and a husband-to-be and a son and a guy who grew up in a severely messed up household and a veteran. Um, and I think as soon as we limit him to just being a killer or as soon as we limit him to just being Israel Keys, then we don't really interface with those things in the way that I would like you to. Um, you know, I want you to have emotional reactions, uh, not just to his crimes, but to the hardships that he has gone through and also that his family has gone through. And and that doesn't mean that I have sympathy for him because uh, I think he's a piece of shit. I hope I can say that. Oh, yeah. He's a fucker. He is. He's, he's, he's a terrible human being. But I would like us to consider, like, why that is, and should yeah. we have empathy for him? And if he is a psychopath, which is a mental illness that we can't control, um, then shouldn't we approach this with um, some openness? Because um, I think, like, you wouldn't hate a person who has is bipolar because they did something crazy during a, a swing, um, and I know that that is an extreme comparison, but it, it like if someone can't control their actions, they should definitely be held accountable. But we also should look at that with a little more circumspect. 
I agree. And he's not the only serial killer who had a family and you know kill, killed people who weren't his spouse. Exactly. Um, and so maybe that's something to look at further. Like as you're saying, you know, th- this is someone who can compartmentalize um, their their life as a family member, as a dad, and th- their dark impulses as a serial killer. Yeah, and if we can understand all that, then hopefully we can prevent it in the future. And, I, you know, I just think that's important. I think it's also important to say, you know, someone could be an amazing person who does a lot of amazing things and then something happens and they kill a bunch of people and they are awful, but that shouldn't negate necessarily what happened prior to that and not in a way that we should honor him, but we should take a look at, like, how his actions affected other people positively. You know, you look at his daughter... Um, and his ex-wife or ex-fiance and their lives have changed drastically, mostly negatively because of him, but also a little bit positively. And I, I think we are doing them an injustice and we're doing storytelling an injustice if we skip over those parts. Do you have an opinion on the influence of the military career had on his career as a serial killer? Like Tim said, he could com- compartmentalize his family life with his serial killer life, and we know that he was a meticulous planner by planning years in advance. Do you think that had any roots in his military training? I think, uh, I mean, I think we could do three or four episodes just on that. Uh, yeah. You know, I won't, but I, I do. I think, I think he's a bit of nature and nurture. Uh, yeah. I think he was definitely raised in an environment that's conducive to creating killers. Um, And I think being in the military definitely contributed to that. Um, And so I think it's kind of like he was built this way and then he went into the army and it it kind of executed what was already in him, I guess. Um, You know, he gets training on how to kill people. He gets training on how to disappear. Um, But we also see a vast majority of our vets um, have severe mental health issues that are ignored. Um, so I think it's, it's, again, a very holistic response to his being in the Army. Is It sparked something that was already within him, but it gave him the training, and it also probably fucked him up more than he already was. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah, it, his um his upbringing included some of the the typical serial killer tendencies that you hear like um killing animals, burglaries, uh starting fires as like a teenager and then and then it graduated into like uh like home invasion burglaries and then obviously uh the murders. Did he kill people before he went into the military? The FBI doesn't think so. Interesting. Um, there's one case where I'm not convinced it was him, but I wouldn't be shocked if it was him, uh, which happened like months before he went into the military. And then also just like going back to what you were saying before all that, we also have an overbearing mother, isolation, mm-hmm. uh, extreme religious views, um, suspected abuse. So like there are things that were happening as a child that were really kind of 
formulating what would eventually happen. But he had siblings that didn't turn out that way. Exactly, which is why I think it is nature and nurture. Right, right. Yeah. Sounds cliche to say, but the perfect storm of nature and nurture versus the nature versus nurture. Um, which exactly. Is, which is really, I think, is that rare in serial killers? No, I, I feel like it's always a combo. Yeah, I think it's there are a lot of psychopaths who aren't out there killing people. That's and I think true. that with serial killers, it's the nature and nurturist where, you know, a lot of psychopaths who aren't killing people, it's just the nature. How many victims do you think he had? Definitely more than 11. If I had to guess, based on my research, I would say probably in the low 20s. And we'll get into kind of why that is, but just based on his travels and victims who went missing in places he happened to be, I think it's definitely more than the 11 that the FBI kind of landed on. And um, a lot of criminal psychologists kind of tend to believe the same thing. Yeah, let's get into that for a little bit. What's your, you just, I think one of the more interesting things to me is uh, based on his travels. So you were looking into him and his whereabouts during certain times. Did you look for missing persons in those areas or unsolved cases or was it the other way around did you find an unsolved case and say it was keys there at that time and then look into it i have um it's crazy and it actually my boyfriend kind of cringes every time he sees it it covers our dining room table but it's a giant um chart (laughs) which has all of his travels uh all the times his cell phone was off that were reported that's what's weird about that why this is very normal yeah, right? <laughs> uh, we eat dinner over it every night. Um, <laughs> this, seems, this seems very normal. <laughs> very well-adjusted household. And then anytime he has like credit card blackouts, um, so that's all charted. And the thing with him is he, and we go over it, and I'm sure anyone very familiar with him is very much aware, he didn't just like travel somewhere and kill someone. He would buy in cash tickets from Anchorage where he lived to Chicago, and then in cash rent a car drive it from Chicago to Vermont, kill someone with a kill kit he had buried there three years prior, then drive to Maine, spend two weeks in Maine, and then drive back to Chicago, fly back to Anchorage. So I'm looking at a lot of these trips where he's gone multiple destinations, and they're usually bookended by visits with family or family vacations, um, or just times where he was going somewhere else he said that he liked to keep a really tight schedule when he was murdering people because it made him uh less accountable and so i look for that and then i compare it to cell phone blackouts credit card blackouts um and then i look for missing people in the area um and we there's a few clues it's become like a giant logic puzzle for me because we know Only one of his victims at the time of his death had ever been recovered. So we're looking for victims who have never been recovered. They're most likely going to have gone missing while hiking, boating, at the cemetery. Um, As far as we know, um, the couriers were his only home invasion uh, where he actually murdered someone. Uh, There may be one other one. So we're looking for people who went missing out in the world, and generally there's no trace of them thereafter. Um, And so just matching it up against that and... You know, there are a few um, really big cases that line up with that. Uh, We're going to go into one probably next week. 
but that's the other thing is he said most of his cases didn't receive a lot of attention. So also factoring that in. Um, we'll get into it later in the series, but he does kind of come around and say, well, not everything I've told you is entirely true. I've been lying by omission. So <laughs> um, you kind of have to take what he says with a grain of salt, which is challenging as well. Like an asshole. What, yeah. Yeah. Why, why, why not uh, tell about more of the victims? I mean, I mean, he get, he so he talked about a few during those interviews, and then as you said, lie by omission. Um, I, I based on listening to your podcast at this point, I would have guessed that you would have thought his victims were higher than low twenties. I would have guessed I had in my head like thirty, high thirties, uh, that that was going to be your guess. Um, so uh, yeah, what's going on with that? Well, I mean, he's a control freak and he's an asshole, uh, and. He had this deal with the FBI where they weren't going to release information about him. Um, and in return, he would give them information about his crimes. And that created a really precarious balance where he didn't want to give them too much because then at a certain point, they're going to have to release information. Um, he also wanted to keep control of the investigation. And so he was very withholding. And then uh, when there was a slip up and his name got out, he got pissed, refused to talk to them, eventually killed himself. So... Um, his reason for not giving out more is to keep control and um, because he's a petty little bitch. And then why not more? I just think uh, I don't I don't like to do this thing where we have like super serial killers. Uh, like, you know, there are serial killers who have killed hundreds of people, but they have generally been active for decades. Uh, Keys was only really active for 13 years. And I just looking at his travel, looking at everything else he had going on, I just don't think it's viable uh, that he could have killed more than like 25 people. Okay. Was there any uh, consistency of uh, in between time with the murders? Like, did he go three months pretty much on average or something? Not really. Okay. Um, and again, we only can verify three, maybe four of his murders, or the FBI only can. So a lot of this is um, hypothesis or presumption. So we, I don't really want to get into the, of like, I think he killed them. So he killed them on this date, which means that was three months from this date. Um, and he also was very smart. He knew that Ted Bundy kind of had cycles. He studied Ted Bundy. He learned from Ted Bundy's mistakes. So I believe he was probably very cognizant of making sure he wasn't falling into patterns like that. Yeah, sure, you don't want to um, tout a super killer, but we're describing a super killer, someone who studied from serial killers past. That's is really horrifying to think. I mean, do we think other people are out there today that are doing that? Yes, there has to be. Yes. <laughs> yes, there has to be. In any industry or any sort of profession, there's always somebody else who is trying to be better than the previous person. Well, the least we can do or, you know, what we have to do as listeners and consumers of this is be aware, right? I mean, be aware of the, of the people around you in a parking lot. Uh, and th there was one story where that he spoke in his own words on your show where he said he was he was going to uh, abduct this guy uh, who was like wa walking into his apartment. But he ended up running into his apartment because it was raining. And and he was like, yeah, that basically saved his life. And so Keys had to pivot and ended up killing someone else, I believe, that night. Um, but can't we just can we just prevent some of this by just being more aware? Yeah. And, you know, it's a slippery slope, though. Um, and I'm sure you guys are you know, kind of live this yourself. You, you know, have family and you have been doing true crime longer than I have. 
Um, it's really easy to fall down the rabbit hole of everyone's out to get me. I can't trust anyone. Everyone's trying to kill me. Um, and so I don't really want to do that. I think absolutely be aware. But, you know, in the last episode I did, I talked about, or maybe it was the one before that, like how rare it actually is to be murdered in a national park, how rare it actually is to be murdered. Like you're more likely to be, you know, hit by lightning than to be murdered by a serial killer. And so I think that's really important. And a big part of my show is like, we cannot let true crime dictate how we live our lives. You know, every, I talked to a few listeners um, in the first few episodes and all three of them had said that they talk to their therapists about true crime and how much anxiety it gives them. And, like, that is no way to live your life. <laughs> like, if, if you're doing something or engaging in some sort of a habit that's giving you as so much anxiety that you're talking to a therapist about it, it's time to cut the cord. Um, so I do think, like, be aware. Don't go hiking by yourself, especially if you're a woman. Um, lock your doors. Uh, get an alarm system. For God's sakes, carry mace. Carry mace. If you're, yeah, if you're but... jogging, if you're a young woman and you're jogging, carry mace. Yeah, or a but young also, man. or a young man. Don't, or, yeah, yes, but also don't stop doing what you love because you're afraid someone's going to murder you because they're probably not. Yeah. It is a slippery slope. You can see what you're saying. But how did he get some of these victims? It was a question that I kept kind of asking myself and listening because he's like, uh, you know, oh yeah, m- maybe he killed this person and then the the body was found in a park. And I think there was one one example specifically, I forget the victim's name, but he had sandals on and it was like he was an experienced hiker, would not have been where he was found with sandals, just didn't make sense. He was um, potentially a victim. Um, but how did he get them? Did he like coerce them into his car like, like or into a position where he can hit them over the head and then toss them in like Bundy or I'm going to ask that same question in a different way, because what I what I think is fascinating is what you're saying is how did he manage to because he's smart enough to know that it needs to be random in order for him to not have victims traced back to him, but he also needs to stalk them for a little bit so he knows the habits. So how did, how did he work that? Is that, that kind of what you're saying? I, I don't. I mean, I think there's uh, several different kinds of victims, like the couriers. He was out waiting outside their house for hours uh, for the right moment to go inside. But there were other ones that he had no connection with that he must have just, like for lack of a better word, like got them somehow. I don't know right. how. So is the randomness intentional, I guess? Oh, yeah. sorry. We yeah. have a guest. We have a guest. Hey, Josh. <laughs> um, it is intentional. And, you know, that you mentioned something, and I think it's one of the most interesting things about him. Uh, did he coerce them into his car? And for a guy so methodical, um, so meticulous, he said multiple times that he never wanted to talk to a victim before he abducted them because then it would make him just want to be friends with them. So it needed to be a spree attack. Uh, which I think is just absolutely fascinating that this is a guy who likes people, uh, who wants to be friends with people. Had who, friends. Yeah. Who knows he can't talk to people because then he won't want to kill them. Um, and I've never heard that from a serial killer before. And that may just be me not being as deep into true crime as many other people, but I've never heard it. I've never so there's heard that. that. Yeah. And then he he just would wait in parks. He would wait in the forest and... He knew if he killed someone who was slighter that they were going to be easier to abduct and dispose of. He knew someone alone or two smaller people. Um, He knew someone who was maybe an inexperienced hiker. He would just wait in the woods and see what came that 
was going to be easy. Um, and that's what makes him so scary. He didn't have uh, known victimology. He was just whatever's going to be easiest, whoever I can kill where I will not get caught. Um, and he was sexually motivated and was not motivated by gender. Uh, he didn't care if it was a man, a woman. His only rule was no kids. Yeah. Oh, he's some, he's some yeah, what uh, a champion. Yeah. yeah. But that sounds mm-hmm. like he used the technique of Ted Bundy or used his mistakes as a as a learning tool because Ted Bundy escapes from custody and then goes on a kills rampage at a sorority house, which is exactly what Ted Bundy was going to do. You know, it sounds like he's trying to make it so like a wide net is cast and he knows that he can get away with that. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah. And he even said, I, I let my victims come to me. Um, and he even said, when I stopped doing that is when I got caught. Um, you know, the, he says that the couriers were when he really started to make a lot of mistakes where he knew that his time was come, running up and it was because he lost control. He stopped being meticulous. Yeah. I, you say stopped uh, or he lost control. Um, but that was a pretty um, planned out um, double murder. And so he abducted them. And you can hear this in his own words on your show, True Crime Bullshit. He uh, abducted them from, from their house in Vermont after cutting their telephone line, which is straight out of the fucking 80s slasher sure, horror movie, yep. and goes in and ties them up and separates them and then puts them in, a, in the car he had and drives them to an, an abandoned house where he uh, rapes Mrs. Courier and kills Mr. Courier in the basement. And then goes uh, goes and kills Mrs. Carrier. One one part of that story that was particularly strange to me that I didn't expect was uh, after hearing it, it, it made it sound like, oh, this is rural v- Vermont. Um, there weren't any real other houses that you could see. But then I looked at the video um, from the news, and there were houses like like hundred feet away. It was just a yeah. normal suburban neighborhood. Yeah, it's a suburban neighborhood, and it's a suburb of Burlington, which, again, not a huge city, but the biggest city in the state. Um, and, you know, it, it, was, it was just like any other small town. It wasn't farmland. It wasn't acreage. It was it, like he could see the next-door neighbor while he was staking out the house. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I included any of that, but he was stalking the next-door neighbor just so he knew he wouldn't get caught, making sure that the next-door neighbor never saw him. The next-door neighbor was out smoking a cigarette, cleaning his pool, yeah. and Israel is crouched down in the bushes just waiting for him to go to bed. And But th- he talked to the couriers a bit. I mean, you can't really avoid talking to uh, victims in that scenario, the way he ended up planning that one out. Um, but that didn't prevent him from killing them. No, and a lot of the talking was him giving them commands yeah. and telling them what to do, um, and a lot of it at that point was when they were already in the car and tied up, and he was on his way to the farmhouse, but he did talk to Bill Courier, and strangely, they had been in the same army battalion, um, and he was like, oh, that's kind of neat, um, and then killed him anyway, and he actually was going to sexually assault Bill Courier as well, but Bill became a problem, so it, the guys that a fucked up psychopath and um he definitely even though he and when he talks about them particularly well no both of them he talks about them with a lot of like respect like he was like oh lorraine she was a fighter she was really feisty and bill he was really interesting and like he seems to have you know quote unquote respect for these people obviously he didn't because he killed them but um yeah it's just bizarre he, he talks about a lot of them um with high regard what is the most impressive element 
of keys to you. Like if you were to take him and put him in just a regular office environment and he showed this particular strength in an office environment, you'd say, wow, that's a standout guy. Is there anything about him that struck you as like, that's just impressive? I think, um, I mean, in an office situation, I think he was very witty and charismatic with without being extroverted uh like he was deeply introverted i think he had very good people skills um he could read a person uh which is obviously why he was so good at what he did uh but i think that he's the type of person who was i think deeply insecure deeply introverted had was raised with no social skills whatsoever but you could put him in an office he would make friends with everybody he would know how to exploit people's weaknesses um and no one would ever be the wiser for it you just wouldn't want to ride the elevator down with him. Yeah, or go hiking with him. Right. <laughs> or the elevator up with him. Um, a couple of uh, standout moments from your uh, your podcast. One of them that was particularly disturbing was when he uh, tied up uh, his sister's cat to a tree and shot the cat with other people around. And that was, that was almost really hard to listen to. I don't know why the animal torture is sometimes harder to listen to than uh, human. Um, but... Uh, but Hearing that the cat vomited after being shot was uh, made me sick to my stomach. Yeah, I've had a few moments where I kind of was like, do I include this? And I'm pretty sensitive to that stuff as a listener. Um, and I think I've become a little desensitized just reading some really fucked up stuff that will never be in the podcast. Um but I also felt like it was important, and a, a lot of the point of this is to kind of jar you awake from the mechanics of true crime. Um, say, like, this is more than just this formula that we have all been listening to for a really long time. Not to say all true crime does that, but, you know, I watch Dateline, and I listen to true crime podcasts, and it does get to be a little like, da 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 um, And so it was like, I really want to jar people. I really want people to be aware of how fucked up this is like you know we and i've talked to listeners and i include listener interviews and everybody has a different want from true crime some people want all the details some people don't want any and so you really can't win and i just thought like if i want to jar people if i want people to be brutally aware uh without being exploitive i'm going to include enough detail so you really are kind of cognizant of what's happening and being in the moment uh, without exploiting the tragedy of what's happening and without including stuff just to gross people out. Yeah, uh, I, I think you need to identify the tragedy and keep that in the same balance as the, the graphic details that you need to include just to jar them awake, have the tragedy on the other end just so that they're not always desensitized. They always yeah. need that part too. And also everything, I include everything for a reason. And I think the inclusion of that was, again, even at, I think he was 13 when this happened, um, his people skills and his sophistication to see he did this thing and people reacted in a certain way. And so he learned from that experience. He had to hide these things about himself. Like that's really important if you're looking at the ethos of Israel Keys. Right. So he, he tied his sister's cat to a tree. He uh, shot the cat. The cat fell, ran around the tree um, kind of frantically, then vomited. And then Keyes said he laughed, was laughing. He thought it was funny. And then he looked at the people that he had brought to that point in the woods with him, and they were horrified. And so that was a, a learning moment for him. I just want to uh, mention uh, out there to our listeners, you know, if, if you know of any, of any kids, teenagers, 
hurting animals, abusing animals, lighting fires, breaking into houses. These are all telltale signs that that person is going to escalate that behavior. So do something about it now when you hear about it now. If, if you know a kid is torturing animals, that is not a normal behavior. Yes. Call your local police, please. And it also doesn't mean that your kid's a serial killer, but oh, yeah. it does mean that it needs to be addressed. Yes. <laughs> Pay attention yes. to your kids. Intervention needs uh, to happen in that case. Um, one other story from from your podcast uh, that uh, that Israel told in his own words was about this first woman that he abducted. Actually, I think it was a, uh, a young woman, maybe I want to say like 14 or something like that, at a... Uh, at a like a lake am i wrong on on that detail and he brought her into like a bathroom right yeah they were she was floating down the river like uh doing like the lazy river float um and she was you know just slightly behind the rest of her friends and he grabbed her in her tube and took her to a bathroom and uh can you describe what happened there yeah he uh he had gone in he had you know, staked out the spot. He found the bathroom, uh, knew he could dispose of her in the in the bathroom. It was like an old uh, permanent porta potty um, that was only cleaned once a month. So he knew the cleaning schedule and knew if he killed someone in that bathroom on this day, they wouldn't be found for at least 29 more days um, and took her in and assaulted her. And she was incredibly smart, especially if you look at the time frame this took place, because it was kind of before true crime became what it is today and before a lot of us knew what we know now. Uh, and she humanized herself and she told him stories about herself and told him that he was attractive and a nice guy and he uh, lost his nerve. Uh, and again, it's another weird thing where he talks about with her with very high regard that she was smart and sweet and kind and um, her savviness was the reason she didn't get killed and he still to this day regrets not killing her because it was his one loose end um, and again like very traumatizing to hear I'm a victim of sexual assault uh, so I don't I don't like living in these things um, but again super important because it teaches us how to avoid these things or how to mitigate these things and it also demonstrates again his ethos and why he made sure he never let anyone go. Yes, she saved her own life by talking herself out of that situation. She was going to be killed and put into the outhouse, essentially, into uh, an area, into down into a hole where people weren't going to smell her body because there's a excre- excrement down there and they weren't going to clean it for almost a month. Yeah. So, So you can either learn about this stuff and and god forbid you ever end up in a situation do your best to fight or talk your way out of a situation know that it's possible that you have the power over the person right. who's abducted you ultimately because there is a weakness there yeah or if 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 israel keys had a weakness that she was able to exploit in that short period of time any psychopath has a weakness and he knew it too he was saying it during his interview yeah. he was like i know what she's doing but i kind of I just let her go, and I it, it did affect me. He was like, I, I knew, but I just had to let her go. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. You said earlier in this interview that, and we, we kind of went right past it, and I wanted to follow up on it. You said that you spoke to people or you heard people say that their son had possibly committed suicide and they hoped that Israel Keys abducted him. Did you say something like that? 
Yeah, the FBI files are full of people who called the tip line whose children were believed to have committed suicide or loved ones. And um, the FBI, none of them were credible Keys victims. But what I found so profound about it was that these people would rather believe that their loved ones had been murdered than that they had killed themselves. And that was just really devastating to me. Um, and that goes back to my my whole perspective on this, which is it's more than just about the crime. Uh, these things affect people who aren't even related to the crime uh, in deeply, deeply dark ways. And I, I just, I would say in the FBI files, uh, there's at least 11 or 12 stories like that where someone's like, there was a note and everyone believes he killed himself, but I just, you know, Keys happened to be within 100 miles and I just want to, I just want to see if maybe Keys killed him. Man, that is like so, it speaks volumes to the heads the headspace that a family member of a suicide victim would be in to not come to terms with the fact that their loved one was damaged enough to kill themselves. Yeah, we've seen some of that with uh, our coverage of the Vanishing Men of Boston. Yeah, oh, people would much rather believe that someone drowned my son as yeah. opposed to he was so... So, fed, so, up with so fed up, so mentally spent that this was the only alternative... You really need to address these things, and I hope people do take this from your podcast and and know that it's not just about glamorizing or it's not about glamorizing at all a serial killer. It's about these underlying issues that come up, come to light when, when you talk about these things or directly experience them. It really speaks volumes about how we treat mental health in this country. Yeah. Um, I mean, just every every piece of it does, and and that's a big one. That I would rather my loved one was was horrifically murdered by someone than had mental health issues and killed himself. That's incredible. Yeah, and we uh, we've been exploring this concept of the definition of evil, and we've talked about it like in the past few episodes with different hosts, different true crime aficionados, if you will. And my personal feeling on it is that evil, when you describe somebody as evil, you're sort of just diminishing the all those underlying things that you're talking about. Evil yes. just becomes this throwaway word. Evil, all it does is really give us an out from facing things we don't want to face. Yeah. Um, you can't limit people like that. It's so dangerous. It's so dangerous. Um, and that's another point of the show is like, you can't boil anyone down to one thing because then you're you're really cutting yourself short and you're not giving humanity um, a holistic view. And I think once we really start um, thinking homogeneously, uh, we we become dangerous. Well, Josh, great work on true crime bullshit. Your show, I think, really ha has some real societal value, as we've discussed here. These are topics that need to be discussed more and things that people can learn from. Like like that woman in the, in the outhouse, you know, talked her way out of it. Like, uh, be aware of this stuff because it could save your life. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking with me. It was so wonderful to have a chat again. <laughs> yeah, I hope that we can do this again. Maybe we can uh, find another mutual uh crime or, or serial killer and we can get to some of those underlying issues and how they relate to to Israel Keys and just what we've been talking about today. I just have one more question. Uh, maybe it depends on the meal, but are you a uh, is it France or Italy for you? For wine? I would say it's actually Argentina, but oh. if I need to pick from those two, I would go France. Argentina. Good. Spicy. Spicy. 